0: hello everyone and welcome to another episode of jonah and ben play board games with friends i am jonah joined as always by my co-host ben hello hello and today we are joined by caitlin welcome to the show caitlin hey hey so how have you two been in the last week or two anything new and exciting going on
1: uh i've been pretty pretty having a pretty good time nothing crazy uh Although we have moved house, we moved house a couple of weeks ago. So that's been exciting. We've got the last boxes unpacked and yeah, just feeling settled in.
0: Does the new place feel like your own now?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh we've settled in pretty quickly. We're uh, within walking distance of two pubs and a bar. So that's a pretty good deal for the size town that we're in. We've moved to a small town out of Melbourne City. Uh, yeah, so it's been been fun
2: exploring, checking it all out.
3: Now, I've, I have a stupid question. This is really, a really, really stupid question.
1: Go for is it. Is there a
3: difference between a bar and a pub outside of one having food and one not having food? Is that the difference?
1: The food thing is is probably a good pickup, uh yeah, but I think there's also something to the vibe uh and and the let me think i guess here our our pubs are usually quite old buildings on the corner of a street um they've been there for a long, long time. bars you know come and go and change, and you know they keep up with the trends, but a pub just. Just stays the same.
0: Also, I don't think you dance at a pub.
1: Yeah, that's right. There, yeah. are, there are lots of bars. Bars you don't dance at, it's more a club. Um, that's what, what we differentiate anyway. Is everything a bar? Everything you that guys? I'm at.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't. I don't think I would say that we have pubs in the US unless it's like a
3: tourist attraction for people.
2: I see. I think So
3: for me, it's like, oh, we're going to this bar, but they have pub food. That's why I picked up on the food thing. Oh. Pub food is a category of food in my mind.
1: Yes. Yes. No, definitely here. Yeah, I would say. Going for a pub meal, it's a very specific thing you have in mind. A very big plate.
4: Oh, yeah. Well, that's ideally what I would have
3: in mind at every restaurant I go to. But <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: but, yeah. I, I don't think it's it's what you can always expect at an Australian restaurant. Um, but at a pub, you definitely can. Mm. But I think in the UK, it's a really big deal. Their public houses are you know, their pubs are something. I don't know. It's it's uh it's, it's more of a local community Tradition, thing as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is pub short for public house?
1: I think so. I recently heard that and I was like, that's cool.
0: Wow. Yeah. What's bar short for? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't think it's short for anything. I think it's just like the place where you go up and buy a drink, right? No that long it looks bench. like a long bar yeah that's what i always imagined
3: it was um welcome to jonah and ben discuss bars with friends excellent i feel very welcome well
0: Ben, we can switch over to board games if you'd like but first oh no i'm
3: enjoying the chat i'm
0: just I laughing forget, about it caitlin since it's your first time on the show yeah what Board game got you into the hobby, and what type of games do you like to play, or what types
1: yeah this is a this is a good question. I do remember I think uh playing some settlers of Catan, the classic uh, gateway game uh, when I moved out of home, I first moved to the city uh, and but the real one that kind of got me, I think, was someone introduced me to Dominion around the same time. And, uh, yeah, I think I always have a soft spot for for deck builders still to this day. Um, yeah, I think that one really got my attention. It was unlike anything I would played before. Settlers of Catan, it's still, uh, I don't know, it didn't seem... Um, Maybe quite as complex. or But Dominion, I felt like, okay, I could play this a lot of times. There's a lot of things to to unravel and figure out here. And that got me excited.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: It also helps that Dominion, I think Katana as well, but Dominion has like 10, 15 expansions, right? There's so Mm. much added onto that game.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd say those two, I mean, I always grew up playing... Like Monopoly and uh, and uh, is it Clue? What's the one with the murder mystery? <laughs> yeah, we, we see her, but
3: it's Cluedo, it Cluedo everywhere Doder
1: else. Right? There, right? Yes, yeah, we call it Cluedo. Um, yeah, I always loved that. That was probably where I was like, hang on a second, this is more interesting than Monopoly. <laughs> um, and I made when I was a kid, I made like a I, I made a real life spinoff in our house of Cluedo. We didn't murder no people, way. but I, <laughs> I, I started hiding uh, different cards in different rooms that my cousins and and my brothers had to then find. And we had a guard that would walk the hall. It was it was great fun. So I always was interested like in in making games more interesting. I think so. I grew up with these kind of st- stock standard family games, but I was always looking for something a bit more interesting.
3: Have you ever done like a real like murder mystery? I don't, I feel like I've talked about murder mysteries on the podcast before, but I can't remember because I did one in college and it was amazing. And I want to do another one sometime. That's
1: awesome. I've only done, I mean, I've done some, uh, what do you call them? The rooms, break, uh, escape rooms. rooms, Yeah. I've done some of those and love them, but I would love to do a murder mystery. I mean, it, it seems like something that takes a lot of organization. Um, yeah, it seemed
3: like it seemed like it when I when I did it too. Crazy.
1: Did you figure it out?
3: Um. So it was back in college, and it was Disney themed. And I remember <laughs> I was so the host, the hostess, and the host were um. What is it? Eric and Ariel were the, the Little Mermaid, and that was the name of the guy that she was together with at the end of the movie. I think I haven't seen Little Mermaid in forever, but the host. And the hostess, the, them together at their apartment. And that was the two of them. And she died immediately. So, like, the host <laughs> usually dies right away so that they can facilitate, like, the rest of the game.
1: Oh, um, I didn't know that.
3: And, yeah, and the idea was we had to figure out who killed her. Like, which of the Disney that we all dressed up as and played killed her. That um, sounds fun. Yeah, it was really cool. I was Hades, which is great. Because I went to, like, Party City right before that, and I got, like, a blue wig, and I had, like, the two little, like, demon characters, and I, like, made these little demon characters and, like, attached them to my shoulders, and I had a cape. Amazing. Um, And it was neat, because they incorporated, and I don't know if they got this off of, like, a website where it's, like, pre-planned, or if they did this all themselves. But they had, like, points that a new person would die like, each night, essentially. Um, and they would have Disney trivia, and if you, like, answered the questions correctly, you would get extra clues. So it, like, added a little bit of, like, trivia to it also. Cool. It was really cool. If I remember correctly, it was Jafar that was the murderer. Um, and I don't remember who it was, but it wasn't one of my friends that I went with. But um, it was really neat, because it was, like, nice. 20, 25 people, and I only knew, like, four of us mm-hmm. that went so I got to meet a bunch of new people because you have to walk around and like talk to people to know what to know what they know, because each person gets emailed like pieces of the mystery. So, you know, like this person knows this person, but they don't. So you have to go around and like interview people kind of. So it was nice to like meet new people. It was really fun. Mate. I would love to do another one.
2: That sounds my cool. only knowledge of. Oh,
3: sorry. Go on.
1: No, I was just saying that sounds really fun.
2: All I know
0: about murder mysteries is that my stepbrother was an actor in a murder mystery party. So apparently there are murder mystery events, parties where you can go and be an actor and you like have a set role that you really have to like learn in, in advance and play out. So I guess it was a more professionally done murder mystery.
4: Wow. Kind of like neat. an escape
0: room
3: is this whole setup, so that That's would be cool neat to though. try.
2: That sounds, that sounds awesome. like
3: part of the plot from that game night movie. Because they, they hired those people, but then it was like a real murder. So hopefully that doesn't happen to your stepbrother, but,
1: or it <laughs>
4: didn't. Who knows? Uh, but,
1: yeah, That sounds great. I'd love to think that I was meeting someone who'd come to the party just like me, and it turned out that they're, they're an actor and do something crazy.
0: Yeah, that would be wild. I'll have to ask him about some of his experiences, because I think he did it more than once. So maybe next week I'll report back. Yeah, that would be cool. Well, why don't we start talking about some board games? Sounds good. Um, Yeah,
3: I played a few things this week. Um, A lot of them are just quick, easy games, um, the vast majority. And then one is a little more in-depth. I played two games of Crossing. This week and I don't know Jonah if you remember crossing but uh, the gist of this is that you are these little gnomish creatures I think um, and you are trying to collect these gems so it's a little bit of set collection because you're there are clear gems red gems yellow gems and blue gems and you're trying to make sets and they're worth more points if you can get a full red yellow blue set Mm. the transparent gems are always worth a set number of points but the gist of the game is that it it requires three players, so it's, I think, three to six. Um, and you count to three, and then on three you point at, like, a disc that's on the board that has gems on it. And if more than one person is pointing to that disc, nobody gets anything. But if you're the only one pointing to that disc, you take all of the gems that are on that disc. But the trick is, once you have gems on your little player board... Other people can now point at your player board and steal gems from you. So you need to then put your hand over your player board to bank your gems, to score them, and also to block people from taking them from you. Um, so it's like a... I seem to be on this theme of rock, paper, scissors-esque <laughs> games lately because they're like the easiest things to play, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it plays in like 10 minutes. It's so easy. And Jonah, I actually learned a new rule that I think we missed the first time we played it. But if you, when you block your gems, you actually have to flip your tile over and rest for an entire turn. What does that do? So, you're, so in a three-player game, it only leaves the other two people pointing for the next count. So hmm. you, can't, you can't get more gems for the next turn. Which was hilarious, because it was my friend, my brother's friend, uh, myself, and my brother playing and um i lost as usual but um it was my brother and i left after uh, our friend was resting and we still every time pointed to the same pile like we just kept <laughs> pointing to the same pile and so nothing nothing would happen um so that was pretty funny uh and then we also played this same friend my brother and i played a game of space space Um. So I we've talked. Have we talked about Space Base like in depth yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have. Um. So Space Base, the dice rolling, dice sharing game. Uh, highly recommended. I love this game. Caitlin, Uh,
1: have you played Space Base?
3: Jake might have.
1: I have not had a play yet. I think I've heard you talk about it though.
3: Yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's really fun and easy to learn. Um but I got smacked, like, big time. Uh, Just to give you an idea, uh, I believe... Let me actually pull this up, because it's more fun to read out the
4: actual scores to show how bad this was. Um, I lost... By a lot. 41. Then 29 was the next person.
3: And then I had 5. Uh, so what, so what was happening the whole time was I never had a good enough, uh, economy to bring in money and buy things that would give me points. So the entire game, I had like one card on my entire tableau that would give me points if a specific number was rolled. So I was like, just not getting points the whole time. Um, but my brother Jared had a ridiculous engine that let him like, do like a triangular recycling bin looking symbol worth of actions that would get him like seven points a turn. It was nuts. Um, so yeah, I lost really badly. Uh, and then I played one very quick teaching game of, uh, Hanamikoji. Uh, that was one I haven't played in a while. So Hanamikoji is a two player only game where you have a hand of cards and there are four actions to do in the game. And you're trying to win the favor of these geishas that you lay out in like a row. And there's two, 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 three, three, four, five is the numbers on the geisha cards. And that's how many cards correspond to each one of those geishas. So to win their favor, you need the majority of cards played on your side. So the strategy is to try and like play more cards on your side versus your opponent's side. But the actions that let you do that make you give cards to your opponent to have them play on their side of the board. So you strategically have to figure out what cards you are okay giving away and what cards you want to keep in order to try and win those. Um, I really like it. I hadn't played in a while, so it was nice to play again. And the art is really nice on those cards. Agreed. Mm. Um, And then the final game that I played this week, which fits into our uh, nature games theme, it seems, is uh, Root. Uh, and Root, uh, a game of woodland, might, and right, is the full name. <laughs> uh, this one was really interesting. Jonah, you and I played this one together with Jake and Jamie. Uh, and all of us were new, except for Jamie. He had played before. Um, and this one is highly <clears throat> asymmetric, so each faction has like a completely different play style. And I don't really know how to, how to best talk about it without it sounding like four different games, because it essentially is. But um, I really, really enjoyed this one. It, um, my faction specifically was the Woodland Alliance, so I was going around uh, adding these sympathy tokens to the board, which let me like revolt and destroy other tokens on the board, so I was having fun doing that.
0: So a good way to start out... For talking about Root is, I think they even do an intro in the rulebook. It's like, you know, in this game, the cats have control over the whole forest, and there are other animals vying to regain power or to take power. So, you know, one person plays as the cats, and then Ben, your player, was the Woodland Alliance, which is the group of animals that goes around and starts rebellions in all of the clearings in the forest. And then Jake's character was the Vagabond, which is just kind of this strange, random animal that goes around and does whatever they want and plays a totally different game from everyone else. And then I was the Birds, which are another animal that have a really interesting twist on how they can do things. So now you can keep talking about the Rebellions you started, Ben.
3: Yeah, well, it was tough for me to start Rebellions because... um... I needed to have specific card types, so it it includes, like, suits of cards that you have to play in order to do certain actions, so I needed to have specific cards to to revolt in certain areas, but there were a few locations where I was so close to destroying, like, seven or eight pieces at once, because my revolt action gets rid of everything, Um, and then places, like, a faction base for me to then spawn creatures from, Uh, but it's also super easy to destroy my sympathy tokens, so, uh, Jamie was doing a really good job of quelling the rebellion, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and the one thing that i I had thought about after we played, for my faction specifically, um, was it was kind of neat how, from my perspective, Jamie and you, Jonah, had to kind of split up responsibilities of taking care of the other two players, right because. You guys are kind of the fa- the the more normal factions, I guess, fighting against each other. And Jake and I were kind of the factions coming up from the background, trying to, like, take over in a different way. Um, so, like, at the beginning of the game, it's like, Jamie was like, oh, we have to take care of, like, these sympathy tokens. And then Jonah and Jamie, by the end, were like, oh, should one of us go after this faction and the other go after this? But they're also still fighting against each other for control which I thought was a kind of an interesting little twist that this game kind of forces on you. Uh, But yeah, it was neat.
1: So uh, can factions be totally destroyed? And is there like one winner at the end? Or what are you aiming for?
3: So there is one winner at the end. The winner ended up being Jake this time around. Um, Each... So you're trying to get to 30 points, but each faction gets there in a different way. Mm. There's no way for a faction to be like completely destroyed like there's not I wouldn't say there's player elimination, but you can definitely back yourself into a hole that's really hard to dig out of if you're not playing the game to your faction's strengths. Um, so Jake was going around like the whole time, kind of playing his own game, because he's the faction that like trades with other people. so he was running around excavating these little ruins and getting tokens that let him do actions. But then if other players crafted actions, he could come over and assist us by giving us cards in order to take those tokens to let him do more things. And get him Um, points. And get him points. Which is actually how he won the game. Um, Because he did not give favor to Jonah's faction until the very end of the game. So he only had one action left and only needed one point to win. And The more you aid people, the more actions you need to take to give them cards to get points. But because he had never aided Jonah that game, he only needed to use his one remaining action and his one card to gain a point and then win off of that. Yeah,
0: so so Jake had 30 points. I had
3: 29. I was almost there. I was... So close. <laughs> I and I had 25, but I was one turn away from winning. So I was like sitting there silently saying, "Like I was just like mad that he hadn't aided Jonah during the game." But then, as Jonah pointed out later, that just meant he would have had another point earlier in the game, so it wouldn't have changed much. But I was literally one turn away from being able to just swoop in and kind of like place tokens and get points. Um, and then Jamie was trailing behind.
1: Is it often a close game? Have you played a few times or?
3: So this was all of our first games except for
0: Jamie. Jamie has played it a lot of times. And he said that most of the games are reasonably close. Because a big thing in this game is you have to kind of keep the other players in check. Because you you can kind of argue that this one faction is strong. But that faction is strong because no one else paid attention to them the whole time. So if everyone's really watching what the other players are doing... I think it's going to end up being a close game. Mm. But otherwise, maybe
3: not.
4: Cool.
3: Yeah, I think a a good description is actually... I feel like I'm just going to read Jamie's descriptions off of the factions before we started the game because they were really good. Um, and I think that it, it explains a lot. And um, then I want to describe to Caitlin and to everyone, but specifically yes. Caitlin, because I think you will like this,
0: how the birds work. And yep. I played as the birds.
4: Cool.
3: Okay, so uh, the cats, they start with loose control of most of the map. They need to try to hang on to that control. They are the most mechanically straightforward, which as somebody, for me, I was watching the whole board. So I came away from the end of the game saying, I think I could play another game as another faction and understand how to play, like rules-wise. I would agree with that statement, because they seem like they just take an action create resources use those to create more buildings the birds they start with their power concentrated in a corner they need to aggressively expand each round they add an action that they also need to take each subsequent round and if they can't they get punished do you want to explain now or after the whole thing jonah uh run through the other
0: ones and then i'll do a deep dive on the birds
3: really quickly Woodland Alliance.
0: Bird-filled week with Root and Wingspan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, Woodland Alliance was me. Uh, they aren't on the map at the beginning of the game. They have the smallest military presence throughout the game, but they can disrupt the birds and cats in other ways and have the most potential for explosive plays. Uh, which is pretty true, because those sympathy tokens, I can revolt and then place a base, and then I can spawn new creatures, send them to other clearings, and then kind of essentially kamikaze them to create more sympathy tokens. So I was able to kind of like spread out. It was tough for me to do at the beginning because it's hard to defend those sympathy tokens because you can attack them. Um, And without spawning creatures, which a base is required for, I had no defense. So in the beginning, it's hard to get going. But once you get going, you can really pick up. Uh, And then the Vagabond, which was Jake, they control a single pawn instead of an army. They get actions based on items they can find on the map, or they can trade with other players to get more actions. Their strategy revolves around when to help other factions and when to turn on them. So I think those are really, really accurate, and I think those are great descriptions, and they should put them in the rulebook. Way to go, Jamie. Very good. So, yeah.
0: Jamie's the best. All right, you ready to hear about the birds, Caitlin?
2: I'm
1: ready.
0: All right, so before I talk about the birds, I have to rewind just a little bit. Ben mentioned that there are suits in this game. And on the map, there are 12 clearings. And there are three different types of clearings. There is a bunny clearing, a mouse clearing, and a fox clearing. And the four types of suits of the cards are bunnies, foxes, and birds. And the bird suit is just the wild suit. So it can do stuff in any type of clearing. As the bird player, I have a board in front of me that has four actions on it. They go recruit, move, battle, build. And I will start with a bird card in two of those. So let's say I start with a bird card in front of recruit and move. That means on my first turn, I can recruit into any type of clearing and then move from any type of clearing that I roll to another. Because I have a bird card, which is a wild card, in each of those slots. Each turn, I can put one or two new cards into that tableau to add to the actions that I take. But the issue with that is that if I ever don't take an action that I'm required to take, my whole thing just like blows up and I go into turmoil.
4: So the bird
0: cards are really great because they're wild and you can do whatever. But if I put down a bunny card in the battle slot, you know that's going to be great, because I'm planning to go battle in a bunny clearing right now. But next round, I also have to find a bunny clearing to battle in, and I also have to find this fox clearing to build in. And you just kind of make this program that has to repeat and grow every single round. And the moment that you can't do something you're required to do, you have to wipe all the cards, you lose some points, and it blows up in your face.
1: That sounds really neat. I'm yeah, it sounds fun to try out and you've sort of got your own little uh, you know, risks that you're taking just in thinking ahead and, and what you might be able to do. So if you ever can't do something, are you not allowed to do anything in the in the program?
0: That's a good question. So the moment you get to the point where you can't do something that you are required to do, you go into turmoil, which means until that point, you can take all of the actions. So the, the round that I went into turmoil, it was because I couldn't do something in the build stage, which meant I was still able to do my recruit and my move and my battle and one of my two builds. And then once I reached that build that I couldn't do, I said, all right, (laughs) I'm done. So I was able to do stuff first, which was really helpful. Got it. And I had a lot of fun with that faction. And just like Ben said, he thinks he can play as any of the other factions. I don't know that I could, because I was so focused on figuring out how to make every turn not blow up in my face the entire time, which was fun.
1: So interesting. So you almost had a little, like, engine builder game, which none of the other factions had? Right, exactly.
0: Every faction plays totally different from every
3: other one. Which is... So I actually backed this game on Kickstarter when it came out, I think, in 2018. And I was I sold it pretty quick, because I had heard so many things like, it's like you're teaching four different games and all this. So I was really nervous about trying to teach people four different games, Mm. which is essentially how it is in play. But now that I've actually played it, I think the basic rules are easy enough to teach that I don't really know why I was afraid of the whole teaching aspect of it. But, like Jonah said, for him, he would probably need to relearn how another faction works. But for me, as someone who spent the game watching every other faction and trying to pick where to go... I wasn't focused so much on myself, so I understand what Jonah was doing, so I feel like I could go and play that faction. I might not understand the strategy, and I might screw up way faster, but I feel like I at least have the basics down, but I see where he's coming from. But I'm glad that I played it now, because now I'm not afraid of teaching it, so uh, it's a good thing that I was able to play it. But yeah, it is like four separate games in one, Um, and even more with the expansions, because there are other factions.
1: Right. That's so cool. And I'm so impressed that, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed when that can work out to be so well-balanced that you have a close game that you came down to a one point difference. That's very, very cool. Um, do you think the other factions had a similar experience or was it just your faction that was learning everyone's moves? I mean, did the Vagabond have to kind of keep an eye on everyone else?
4: So, based on what Jake
3: said at the end of the game, he had a similar feeling to Jonah. And I can see that because I honestly, I, I said at one point while we were playing the game, it feels like we've been playing a game and Jake's just been there until like <laughs> right now. Um, it literally didn't feel like we didn't, we, we kind of screwed up as a, th- a group of three against his character because none of us were keeping him in check. So to keep him in check, you have to fight where the Vagabond is in the clearings because it damages his gear. So when his gear is damaged, he can't do as many actions. He needs to take time to, like, repair his gear, and then he can take his actions. And I don't think that we attacked him until the last round. So he was right. just running around doing his own thing and trading and getting points and just came out of nowhere and was at like 27 points, and then we were like, oh, I think we need to pay attention to the Vagabond. <laughs> so I would I would say that Probably not. I would say Jamie probably only is able to see the other actions because he's played before, but I would say Jake and Jonah had, not to put words in their mouth, but I think they had a pretty similar experience of
4: kind of playing their own game on the same map. Cool. But I really like this one, and I
3: got it for cheap from a friend, so I had really wanted to play it. Um, So now I own it, and I'm really excited to play it again. So. Yeah. And that was those were a, a very long winded way to say those were the four games I played this week. <laughs> All
0: right. I guess that makes it my turn. Uh I only played two games this week. The games I played were Root, as we just mentioned, and Wingspan, which is our game of the week. So I'll do a slight overview of Wingspan and then Caitlin, I want to hear what you have to say on it since it was your choice for the week.
2: Yeah, sure.
0: So Wingspan is a game about birds. It is designed by Elizabeth Hargrave. It came out, I think, last year, right, 2019?
2: I actually don't know.
0: I'm pretty sure it came out last year. Uh, published by Stonemeyer of Scythe and Tapestry and Pendulum and a bunch of stuff fame. And in Wingspan, Ben gives me the thumbs up, 2019, In Wingspan, you are creating a nice aviary of birds. You have a player board in front of you. You'll have a hand of bird cards. And then you will have some food tokens in front of you. And you have four choices on your turn. You can either play a card, which is add a bird to your bird collection. You could gain some food... There is a nice little bird feeder dice tower with some food dice in it. You can lay some eggs, which would just put some eggs on your bird cards that are already in your aviary. Or you can draw cards, which just lets you draw cards, of course. The goal of the game is to have the most points at the end of the four rounds. And something that's really neat about this game is when you take actions, you place your action cube into the leftmost open slot in the row in which you are taking the action. So if you are taking the lay eggs action and you have two bird cards there, you will put your action cube to the right of that furthest over bird card, which is the leftmost open slot in that row. You do the action on that uh, rectangle, on that spot. And then what's really cool is that action cube slides over to the left, stopping at each bird card before it hits the left side of the board. And each time it stops on a bird card, if that bird says, when activated on it, you do that activation. And that can help you get more food or points or cards, a few things. And it is. Very much an engine builder. You start out with nothing in front of you, and then slowly and surely, you get more and more things with each action. Because, you know, turn one, if you want to lay some eggs, you can't because you don't have any birds there. Turn four, you want to lay some eggs, you lay eggs on this card and that card, then you slide over and you do this activation, you slide over and you do that activation, and you really feel your turns start to grow. So I think Wingspan does a really great job at. crescendoing, if I can say that. And another cool thing to it is there are round end tiles for scoring purposes. And when you score those tiles, you will put one of your action cubes on the position in which you scored, so first, second, third, or fourth, which then means the next round you have one fewer action to take. And then on the second round, after you put your action cube there, you'll have a, another fewer action to take. That's uh, that's wingspan. So Caitlin, now you can talk about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you you're right about those two like really neat um, mechanics. It means so you've got four rounds, and that last round is almost you almost have half as many. Uh, Turns as the first round. So it's so quick. The first few games, it really took us by surprise just how much that flies by because by that time you're quite excited about the engine you've built and all the things you can do. <laughs> uh, but you've got to really, you know, wrap things up and be quite targeted. You've only got a few turns left. Um, so yeah, it gets quite interesting. Um, and I think as it's good to note as well with each of those action rows, they, they align with uh, like a habitat, like a bird habitat. Um, and that works out really neatly so only certain birds can go in that habitat. And I think some of the best kind of combos um, work out when, you know, you can get something that you would usually have to go to another row for, but through the bird you can get it combined into that one row so that you could for example, collect eggs and get some food all in one turn and, and just trying to really make the most of each turn. But, yeah, Wingspan, I am just absolutely blown away by the impressiveness of this theme, how cohesive it is in all of the aspects of the game. It's, every card is unique and every card represents a real bird. Uh, and kind of I guess the powers or you know the characteristics of of that card are pretty accurate to the real life bird so it's you know it represents what type of nest that bird actually has how many eggs that bird usually lays um compared to other birds uh you know the actual wingspan the actual name it's got a fun little fact about the bird at the bottom and yeah, I think it's really, really nice how that's worked out and which habitats it lives in.
0: Yeah, the fun facts are wonderful. I was just going to chime in on the egg thing because in the rule book, it says, you know, well, in the game, each bird can only hold a certain number of eggs on the card. And the rule book says the number of eggs on each card is scientifically proportionally correct so you know if a bird can only lay 15 eggs in the real world that'll be scaled down by the same rate as another bird that can only lay five eggs in the real world so they really thought about everything with all these cards it's beautifully illustrated the scientific name you know the regions and the fun facts i mean did you know that the oldest known wild canada goose was 33 years old
1: wow <laughs> i did not know that that's great and uh, yeah a fun way to kind of like fill in those natural gaps in in a game where someone's thinking too hard i'll just pick up a card and be like hey here's a fun fact for everyone else um <laughs> and yeah i think i think another thing i really appreciated the more that i've played it i started to be aware of the actual actions on the bird how realistic those are to the type of bird that that is in real life so for example the crows and the ravens usually their power is around taking eggs from another bird and converting mm-hmm. those into food which is pretty accurate because those birds actually steal birds from other you know other nests and eat them like there are birds that eat eggs as one of their kind of foods and I, we didn't mention food, but yeah, food is kind of another category on there. So I think it's, it's very impressive how, yeah, those actions have also aligned. The birds of prey are another one. So they take, when you land on a bird of prey, you can take a look at the deck, uh, take a, pick a random card from the deck and see if it's got a smaller wingspan than the bird of prey. And if it does, it can eat it, essentially. Um, but it puts, it puts the card behind that card. Um, and that tucked card then gets you a point at the end of the game. So all those neat little things which I've started to just kind of think about, wow, that bird actually kind of does that.
0: Yeah, and the, for the birds of prey, the wingspan size that can be tucked Changes as well. So one of them is you know you draw a card. If it's fifty centimeters or less, the of uh, the wingspan is fifty centimeters or less, it can be tucked. But another bird of prey will say, draw a card, and if it's seventy-five centimeters or less, so they really thought about the sizes of the birds, the type of birds, and all of that. So yeah, it's really cool.
1: Totally. Uh, yeah, and I mentioned we got the the European expansion pack. So they started off with American. Uh North American birds. Is there South American birds in the in the starter pack? I think there might be. Some I think so. Or maybe they're just birds that migrate down there. I'm not sure. But um yeah, then you know the second expansion pack they brought out was European birds, and they recently released an Oceana expansion pack, which I'm so excited about. Um you know, here Do you and, have it yet? I don't. I, it's 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 coming in the mail. They're saying you know any day now. But uh yeah, hopefully soon. I'm really excited to see Australian and New Zealand birds and how they work that in because they're very unique. <laughs> you know, right. Australia and New Zealand are islands, so you get these very strange animals uh, here and. I'll be interested to see how they work that into the game and sort of these existing structures. um, Yeah. And sort of bird species groups that they've got going.
0: Wonderful. And Ben, you have not played it. So we will have to uh, tell you all
3: about it even more. I do have a question because you guys are like selling me on this game. Like right now, like this (laughs) really, I, so I owned it back. At no, like the, the very
0: beginning,: I' say later though, Ben. so don't make okay. a purchase just yet.
3: I'm not making a purchase. This is not one of those hear about it and buy games. but my question is, what I don't want to put like board gamers into categories, but like what category of board gamer would you recommend this for? Like is this a good like beginner beginner in air quotes board game? Is it easy to teach? family a... family mm. Okay. Well, I just didn't know if you thought it's like too difficult for somebody who's like
2: yeah hasn't
3: played more niche board games yet.
2: I... So
1: last
3: night I taught this, oh sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, I think that's okay. a really good question. I'm going to let you answer it first though, but yeah. Uh...
0: Okay, I was just going to say last night I taught it to my cousin and his fiance and they do not play board games at all and they were able to understand it after you know like two or three actions they saw how everything worked out. And the nice art, um interesting theme, it's much more palatable than a lot of the board games that we normally play. You know, someone who doesn't play board games, if they come in and say, oh, okay, I'm gonna trade this blanket for some wine and then sell it further down the Mediterranean. That's not that interesting, but ooh, look at this cool bird. And you know, Jessica was saying, oh, this is my dad's favorite bird. And so it's really evocative for people. So definitely, it can be played by new players, and it's a family game. Wait, what's Jessica's dad's favorite bird? Oh god, I thought it was like a... Well, now we need to know. (laughs) Blue-chested
1: nuthatch, I think? I'll have to look.
4: These are names that I'm
3: too immature for this
1: game. (laughs) but it's pretty cool you actually do start to learn the names of them uh that's why i'm excited to have the pack for australia because i'll actually you know recognize some birds and start to see them it's kind of educational in that way um yeah but i agree i think they've tried to target it so i think they're targeting i think they're targeting bird watchers uh people that are already interested in something that's not bird board games and Bird games and uh, bringing them into this bird game, right? Uh, Yeah, so it worked quite well. I was surprised uh, at, you know, how many people were up for giving it a go that don't usually play uh, strategy board games. Um, So it worked really well as a family game, which shocked me. Uh, It is a little bit challenging. I, I would give that caveat. There's in, in the scorecard at the end, uh, you're kind of adding up about seven different ways to score points. And for some people, that's a little bit overwhelming, um, not really knowing how to pick an aim. Uh, but I think if you kind of teach it to people as just try to get as many birds on here as you can, <laughs> they start to pick it up. Um, and it's quite it's got quite a visual way to learn the game in that you go move your tokens across the rows
0: one thing that I do think could have been designed better, just because I taught this to Jessica, and then I taught it to my cousin and his fiance, And the first game with Jessica, she ran into this issue. And the second game, they ran into this issue. On the top row, it is a very small row that says, play a card. And then on, in that row, there is an egg or two eggs over the columns. And that is to show that when you place birds into those columns, you have to pay an egg to put a bird there. What they all confused, and I'm sure this is in part due to my teaching skills, but they all thought that putting an action cube in the lower spots costed an egg because there's an egg on top of the whole column. So I think that design or that layout, that graphic design, could have been a little more clear.
1: Yeah, we ran into a similar problem where uh because that row looks different to the other three rows, it was quite hard to get across that that does work exactly the same as an action. And yeah, I had a few times people wanting to when they played a card go into that row where they were playing it or if they were coming along the top not really recognizing what that egg did mean. Yeah, right. I think the, that connection for sure It makes it a little bit trickier.
0: I think also that as far as mechanics, it makes perfect sense to us because we've played a lot of board games. But when you tell someone that every time they take an action they have to put a cube somewhere, And that it's really key to remember you place a cube and then you move that. I think that's a little tricky for new players to understand because they would think, Okay, I just want to take this action. And then you say, Okay, but put a cube there, and then the cube moves over here, where they'd just be like, I just wanna take this action.
1: Totally. Yeah. For people that have only been playing, you know, Monopoly or family games where you usually get to buy things as well. Having that idea of just having an action and certain rules for what your action can be, that takes a little bit to learn instead of, well, why can't I just buy that card <laughs> or, you know, mm-hmm. looking for that kind of economics. And it is also sort of bird ecology economics. So there's no money, you're playing with food and eggs and things like that. So it takes a little bit for people to catch on. I do think there was an interesting thing in. In my pack, I don't know if you had this in in your base um, uh, box, Jonah, but it had. Uh, they had an attempt, which I thought was really interesting for helping first-time players with the learning curve. Uh, and they were. It was its own little, like sub deck out of the first deck. They had about six, six or eight cards specifically to start with, and some instruction pads. To walk everyone through their first few turns. And when I didn't know how to play and no one in the room knew how to play, I actually find that found that quite helpful for me to pick on it, pick up on it, uh, and then be kind of helping teach everyone as we went.
3: Yeah, and I was actually I wasn't sure what it was, but like I'm looking at the game on Board game geek So that's actually called the Swift Start Promo Pack, but it is included now in every printing of the base box from the 7th printing on. Um, this game was so popular, they needed like 7 printing rounds plus of it. Um, it was so hard to get at the beginning. But yeah, like you said, there's 10 new bird cards and 4 guides to help new players learn Wingspan. The guides walk players through the first 4 turns of the first round. And they can be, the birds can be shuffled into the deck afterwards for use in non-learning games of Wingspan. So Jonah, if the back of that box says sm910 it is in there but i'll have to look it's patrick's box anyway and he's yeah, that's true. done so much with it so he's also probably honestly had this since the first printing because he and i right. are both Stonemeyer champions which is like a subscription thing to get cheaper shipping through stonemaier so he's probably had it from the beginning but yes i i was looking at the expansions and that was one of the expansions and I wasn't sure what it was. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Cause then I clicked on, on the link.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I wouldn't say it's a, uh, you know, I'm not like, wow, this is amazing. This solves like learning games, but I did think I was <laughs> impressed that, you know, they gave, gave a go at something that I hadn't seen before. Um, and it just really made an effort to help people that hadn't played similar games before.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my whole question was kind of predicated on the fact that the, the theme is something that I feel like would draw non-board gamers in, so I wasn't sure if it was like a good game to introduce new players to the world of board games with. So, Caitlin, are there any negatives that
0: you would like to say about the game? Hmm. Or are there any negatives for you?
4: Let me, let me think. Uh...
1: <laughs> We've had, it's it's been really interesting with the scoring. I think this is a really cool thing, but for some people this might be really annoying, which is you almost have no idea who's winning until the end of the game. So it's quite a specific feel to the game then. It's almost not very competitive. If you really want like that fun of the interaction and kind of steals or interacting with other players, that's not there um i kind of think that's that's a bit nice especially if uh you know you've got quite a competitive family or quite a competitive group it can you know bring things down a little bit it's quite a calm game you kind of play your own play your own game to to quite an extent and then at the end it's almost a surprise to see who has actually won um it's we've had very very close games as well which is I think is exciting. But for some people, that's really frustrating as well. Uh, you <laughs> Only know, as the loser, right? But it'll come down to like <laughs> one point difference out of often, you know, scores of 60 or 70 points. It's pretty, yeah, pretty interesting that that happens. I think I don't have many negatives because uh, I'm just so excited that um you know, family members and people that wouldn't usually want to play board games with me have been really <laughs> into this game. So I'm just loving it. Uh, and it's worked quite well as, with a two-player game as well. I would say that that's a downside with if you're introducing new players um, and you've got a group of three or four, it takes quite a long time. Um, if you're learning the game, it slows things down quite a bit. So you could be there for two hours very quickly. Um, and that can kind of turn people off. If you're learning the game for the first time, the two player, you know, if you're just playing the two players, you can wrap it up in 40 minutes. So I think that's a nice way to ease in um, without people getting too bored or tired or, you know, lost in what they're trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh The only thing that I want to mention is, you know, this is a negative for me. It's not a negative for everyone. And it's certainly a positive for a lot of people, especially when it's a good family game. Uh, The negative for me is that it's a little bit too much of multiplayer solitaire for me. Because I'll take my turn, and then generally, it doesn't matter what happens on other people's turns. And I like games with a little more interaction than that. And it's totally fine that this game doesn't have that. I think it's a great family game, but I wanted to have Other players' turns matter for me more than they did. Mm -hmm. And there's also a slight barrier to even following other people's turns because any card that they have that says when activated is going to be three small lines of text on a card on the other side of a table. And, you know, that's a problem in all sorts of games. But when someone has like seven of those cards in front of them and you don't know what any of them say, it's hard to really be able to plan around what they're going to do, even if you were to try to do that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I would, I would agree with that. And I think it's, yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's also not only positive things that you can do. So when there are interactions, um, that always benefits. It's, it'll be like a card where you get food and everyone gets food. Right. And those are the games. I had two of those. Right. So it's an interesting toss up. Like, do I want that engagement and everyone to benefit, but those games, you can get really high scores. Um, I think in the Oceana pack, they've introduced a little bit more interaction, a couple of, um, some of the new types of actions that can interact with other people's like food stores and things like that Mm. so that i'll be interested to see how that plays but definitely i got to the point where i started thinking wait could we just play this without turn taking just in real time and i gave got louisa to sit down with me and play two player without any turns um you've got a limited number of turns with your action cubes and so we just use those and sort of you know race to the finish and then just found out what had happened i did find with that that um i thought it was really cool that it was possible it, it to me showed yeah just how little other people's turns were mattering that you could just go for it uh but you did get a bit lost in what you were doing and i think that time to think through what you're going to do on your turn um yeah do kind of need it for the mental load.
0: So in Wingspan, you have three face-up cards and the deck that you can draw from. When you did this, just the two of you, did you play with the face-up cards? Because that is something that matters between turns, is knowing which cards are still available.
1: That's right. So when we played that, that was one of the rules we adjusted where what we did was uh, usually you have to wait until the end of your turn to refresh those three. And we would just say, whenever you want, you can refresh those three. Um, the other thing that you interact a little bit is the dice, um, the food right. dice. And so <laughs> we found that a bit interesting. You'd sort of grab for the food dice um, and try to get what you could or, or re-roll when you wanted to. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, I'd say that's a fair criticism because it, it starts to feel like...
4: You're really in
1: your own own zone.
4: With your own flock. That's right. Well, since we're talking about nice
0: birds and bird themes, shall we talk about a few other games? Oh, Jessica just texted me. Nuthatch, that's her dad's favorite. The white-breasted Nuthatch is her dad's favorite bird.
1: Excellent.
0: Always faces down the tree. (laughs) Anyway, um, why don't we talk about some other games with some cute animal themes slash nature themed, maybe? So we already covered Root and Wingspan. Um, Another one that is similar to these in a, oh, I don't know how to put this, the same, like, maturity level of theming and like nice cute art or nice well done art I guess is what I'm trying to say here is evolution Evolution is a really cool game where you play as different species and you have cards to uh evolve your animals through natural selection I guess you could say and you'll be able to add horns to your predator or a hard shell to your uh Vegetarian, omnivore, that's the right word for animals. (laughs) Uh, So Evolution is another great family-friendly animal game.
2: Cool. Is it a card game?
0: Uh, It's a card game in the same way that Wingspan is a card game, which is to say there are a lot of cards, but you need... The other bits for it to work. You know, you need the cubes and the boards for it to still make sense, but it is, you know, 90% cards, just like Wingspan.
4: Nice. I've never played it before. Oh, you haven't? It's good. There's
0: the sequel that I think I played in Melbourne one time. It's Evolution Climate, where they added the world temperature to it. And of course, different weather, you know, temperature and weather is climate, so no need to be redundant
4: here. But they added traits to the animals that depended on the weather. So, Caitlin, why don't you tell us about the
0: other nature games that you've been playing for the fifth time because our recording bot is revolting against us?
1: Yeah, no worries. Uh, Recently, I've also bought another Elizabeth Hargrave game, Mariposa. I'm not saying that correctly, but it means butterflies, and it's about the uh, migration of the monarch butterfly. So you each start with one first-generation butterfly. Uh, uh, on the map in Mexico and you can bring, move that up into the U S uh, each round is a season. So I think, Oh, I can't remember which seasons you start with. I think it you
2: start
4: might, with winter. But... Yeah. I think winter is sort of like not on the board. Like
2: um, it. It ends with fall. I want to say, spring, summer, fall. Is that is that the the American seasons? Yeah. Yeah.
4: What are they down there?
2: Well, we say,
1: I say autumn. Like, uh, but the the indigenous peoples here have lots of different seasons in different parts of the country.
4: Hmm.
2: But we say autumn, like the like the Brits. Um.
1: Yeah. So you come up through the map and you can then kind of, uh, collect different flowers and get close to a certain kind of flower, uh, that I think the caterpillars can eat. So you have to be right next to one of those to then kind of spawn a second generation butterfly and then a third generation, a fourth generation. As you pass through the seasons, some of those earlier generations die off. And so by the end, you get a lot of points for how many fourth-generation butterflies you can get back to Mexico. Uh, but there are goals along the way, so each season has its own kind of goals, end-of-round goals. Uh, and, yeah, that's that's the main way to, to earn points. And you have a point kind of tracker, so it's just who has the most at the end. Um, it's a pretty neat little game. Quite... Uh, Again, probably similar complexity level to Wingspan, so fairly easy to teach to someone that hasn't played played many board games before. And that visual kind of map, I think, helps uh, with that. And I found one of the really fun things about it is just having a map where you
2: can go in any direction. Uh, yeah, it's a,
1: not really having um places to go as much as uh i don't know it's hard to explain like the goals are often you know be around that region Mm -hmm. (laughs) by the end of your fifth turn or something um so it feels quite freeing (laughs) in the way that you move around and the strategies you come up with
2: um yeah so it's quite a neat little game
1: cool
0: i'll have to try that sometime
2: yeah. It's, again, very accurate, very
1: scientifically accurate, and a little bit of that conservation focus where, um, you know, you learn about as well, um, they've got kind of some key cities, which I forget what they call them, way stations, I think, where they're kind of like man-made mm-hmm. uh gardens that you can create for these butterflies to be able to have that specific flower so that they can continue on their migration even though there's been a lot of habitat loss Uh, yeah so it's quite interesting interesting to learn about something i knew nothing about
0: yeah that's cool the other nature game that i wanted to mention i mean we mentioned photosynthesis and arboretum last week so the nature game that I want to mention is the granddaddy of all nature games in my brain. And that is, of course, Dominant Species. Dominant Species is an absolutely fantastic worker placement game that takes over three hours every time. (laughs) So it is an undertaking for sure. But Dominant Species is a game where you play as one of six different species. You can be either The birds, the snakes, the monkeys, the reptiles, the amphibians, or the spiders. Yeah, I think those are the six. Wow, I'm surprised I actually remembered that. Uh, Dominant Species is a really cool worker placement game that has speciation and glaciation and all these real-world things. And it is just a fun game. It would have to be an entire episode for us to talk about it. But I love that game. It's a lot of fun. It deals with natural selection and evolution. And you see resources like get depleted based on where animals go and what they eat. And I think it is a lot of fun.
2: Cool. You said it's it's like an older game?
0: I think. Well, the thing with board games is an older game is, you know, over five years old. I think it came out in 2009 or 12. I'll have to Google it. Which I'm sure Ben is doing right now anyway. Um, 2010. A long, long time ago. (laughs) Ben, do you have any nature games before we segue into... One of our next two mini-topics?
3: Yeah, so I ha- I have one more, and I haven't played it, but it's one that I really want to, just based off of the Shut Up and Sit Down review video, and that's Renature. I don't know if you watched I don't know the it. video for this. Um, it's really, really neat. So it's like a dominoes game. So you're like laying dominoes down on a grid board, but what happens is when you place a domino... Um, there's, like, these dirt patches that you are trying to, like, surround with these dominoes, and if you surround it and have, like, the most like, I guess, plants inside of the surrounded area of the of that uh, dirt patch you'll score points based on, like, surrounding these dirt patches, but you have to, like, spend some points in order to, like, plant seeds in these areas to grow them as you place the dominoes It's a quick review video that I would recommend people go to watch, but it like popped to mind immediately when we, when you brought up nature games and I, I've been looking into it because I want to try and find a place to play it. It just seems like a really neat little abstract back and forth game with a nice nature theme. It's made by the guy behind Mm. Azul. Yeah. Wow. So I would recommend checking it out. I I know that's not the greatest addition to our nature games list because I haven't actually played it, but the video uh, did a really good job uh, reviewing it, and it looked like a lot of fun to me. So that one sprung to mind.
4: Still counts. Cool.
3: Yeah, it looks neat.
0: All right, Caitlin, would you like to lead us off with your choice of the next two segments?
2: Yeah, sure. What do we start with?
0: Um, Why don't we start with the common thread between Wingspan and Mariposas that is at the designer side of things.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean I think it's it's pretty
1: exciting um seeing Elizabeth Hargrave's name written on that on that box. And uh yeah, I think it's it's still pretty uncommon um for women to be uh, board game designers and get that kind of recognition and, and uh, you know, take up by publishers. Uh, I think it's been in the top 20 on Board Game Geek for quite a while now, Wingspan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, brought a lot of attention to Elizabeth, but uh, she's done a really good job as well. I, I noticed you found this on her website too, Jonah, but she's put together a big list of, of women and non-binary board game designers uh just to kind of prove to people that she wasn't the only one <laughs> i think she had a lot of people saying wow like this is crazy a woman designing board games and i think just wanted to be like no you know there's a lot of us out here but um you know there are definitely some barriers um to to really getting published and and uh you know, that the level of marketing and funding that's needed to, to make a really popular game.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's
0: funny because just like you said, everywhere that I saw Wingspan mentioned when it was first coming out, people were like, and it's a woman designer and there are no women designers. It's like, uh, <laughs> and I mean, really props to her for saying what she said, you know, I'm not the first one. Here's a huge list on my website of all the ones that came before me. So that's really cool. And looking on that list, I saw some games that I have played. Um, One of these games is called Set, which is extremely well-known in the non-board game world. Set is a game that I hate only because my brain doesn't work with it. It's a really cool game where you have cards that have different shapes and colors and patterns on them. And you have to, I believe, find the common thread between them. It's a really neat game and it's a game that was selected by Mensa as one of their top games when it came out. It joined the elite club of, you know, smart people will say this is a good board game, board games. Um <laughs> I just don't have the pattern recognition abilities <laughs> for a game like that. But that was designed I have this written down I don't just want to say by a woman designer that was designed by Marsha Falco and that is a game designed by a woman another one is Quirkle Q W I R K L E and another one is Bananagrams Bananagrams is designed by Rena Nathanson and her father Abe and that you know that's a father daughter team but Ben, when you and I were talking about this topic, there's a great list on the board game subreddit, and most of the women were co-designers, code so not many solely designed-by-women games out there.
3: Yeah, which, I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me, but like, it also did surprise me by just how many of them were co designs It was almost everyone on the list. I think there were maybe five. Mm-hmm. on that entire list of like i think it was i think they were looking at all of the games in the on the BGG top list and it wasn't in the certain number it literally went to the end of the BGG numbered ranked list um and it was just pretty crazy to see how many were co-designed uh, and i can't even off the top of my head outside of wingspan think of a non co-designed board game by a woman that i've like Heard of and know
4: that it is not co designed. Mm. I even. Yeah, I did go, and... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was
3: going to say, I actually sat down and I went through my BGG collection and I clicked on every single game that I own. And I own a lot of games. I clicked on every <laughs> single game and I only have one board game that was even co designed by a woman in my entire collection. Wow. Which is nuts. And so that I'm not just talking out of nowhere here uh the game is lord of the rings journeys in middle earth uh which is a i don't want to say role-playing-esque game but it's like an app driven narrative journey board game uh and the it is co-designed by nathan hayek I, i'm gonna murder some of these names but it's co-designed by nathan hayek and grace Holdinghouse, and that's the only game that i own that is designed in even in part by a woman, which is crazy to think that I have all these games and there's only one in my entire collection.
2: That is that is pretty crazy.
1: But, but yeah, I think one thing that's been good, hopefully, um, coming from Wingspan, is just proving to publishers that, you know, we need women designing games. There are a lot of people that want to play them. Um, And, yeah, I think Elizabeth Hargrave's spoken really eloquently about this, but I think there are barriers that she's found um, just to becoming a designer um, and starting out in that. Uh, I think, you know, having to show up for lots of conventions, travel around, a huge amount of unpaid work and labour that goes on, playtesting with friends and trying to uh just work out the game through those early stages and then sort of being expected to do a lot of marketing work yourself as well mm-hmm.
2: um yeah i think it's
1: yeah there's it those kind of barriers that make it difficult for everyone make it especially difficult for um for women and and uh you know lots of other lots of other people that um may not have that free time as much or may not have the resources and just the money to be able to travel around and do something like that um before getting paid <laughs> before ever seeing a paycheck you know um yeah and i think she's done a great job of also pointing out that um you know race is also a big thing in in the board game design Community that's really missing. It's incredibly dominated by white people, and um, <laughs> she started another list, <laughs>
2: right. which I
1: think was uh, was black, indigenous, and people of color designers. Just because she couldn't find that list anywhere, and um, yeah, there's plenty to do. I think to to support that kind of diversity in design, and I think that we'll see you know the benefits of that in the diversity of games coming out.
0: Definitely. And, you know, this is a stupid comment, but I'm going to make it anyway. I have never looked at a board game and thought, okay, is the designer a man or a woman? I have only ever looked at these board games for what they are. And, you know, to me, of course, it doesn't make a difference if the game is designed by a man or a woman or a robot or anything. But it's important to have the representation. It's important to have diversity and You know, the barriers to entry are many. You know, going to board game conventions, it's probably 80% men. And, you know, if you have to go to a board game convention as a designer, seeing 80% of the people there not look like you, I can imagine that would make it difficult for your game to even get seen or played. So there's definitely a lot going on.
1: Yeah, totally. But yeah, great to see people starting to have that conversation and also think the direction that she's taken it in those, those conversations saying, you know, there's a lot of other people out here that are wanting to design games. Give them a chance because uh, they're going to be great games.
4: All right. Next topic, Caitlin. <laughs> this is the
0: one that well, we won't John- be able to weigh in on too much. <laughs>
1: Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts and questions, but I've been thinking a little bit about uh, being a queer person in uh, the board gaming culture and how there's I've found an interesting overlap between LGBTIQA plus groups and meetups and culture and board game groups and meetups and culture um, around Melbourne, at least, and I've definitely seen, uh, yeah, Groups in both spheres, kind of having those overlap events. So, places where they are usually board games having an LGBT night, and LGBT groups starting to put on board game events. And I've just been thinking about what it is, what it is about board games that's enabled that kind of overlap to be pretty strong. I think. Um, for myself, I was thinking about how. Uh, When I came out, um, my social network kind of ended. My social network was really built around um, religious groups and communities that I was a part of. So uh, when I left those at the same time as coming out, I was really starting from ground zero. I had about two friends outside of those communities. Uh, And so board games was something where I went, okay, I can use this to kind of meet people and um, just a nice way to make friends. And it proved to be just that. I think it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really nice way to make friends. Um, and for queer people, I think uh, there's lots of reasons to that board games are kind of an appeal. Um, there's a lot of flexibility um, when you're playing a board game uh, in kind of who you are and and your um, your identity as a player is often something that's a part of the game. Um, I mentioned this to you earlier, Jonah, that, you know, similar to computer games as well, there's that appeal of, you know, often you can play as a different gender or a gender that you don't necessarily present as.
2: Um,
1: you can mix, you know, you can switch or, you know, be yeah be lots of different people in a game, and that's kind of an accepted part of the fun uh there's no one kind of restricting who you are in in a board game. I have heard you know that that there's still quite a need for um i know there's still quite a need for more kind of queer representation in board game art mm-hmm. um for example, but I think just that baseline you know part of a game and part of play, which is you know being able to kind of Be someone different from who you are. I think, yeah, I think that's a really appealing part of board games and um, something that is really queer. (laughs) (laughs) It's a queer thing to do to kind of pick up a card and say, "Okay, I am this person with this name and this gender now um, for the for the next hour." Yeah, I think that's that's really cool.
0: Yeah, when you sent me that message the other day, I I had a oh wow moment. I was just like, "This is a really interesting point." And I had never thought about the hobby in that light. You know, I've played all these games tons of times and just thinking about being someone else for that hour or two is really interesting. And, you know, it could be an escape from who you are every day and that could be something nice. And, you know, there are games that it's just it's fun to let go and be part of the game and be that different character. So, you know, Jake's favorite game broom service, you know, you can hold up this wit- this card and say, "I am a brave witch. No, I am a brave mountain witch and I'm going to take my potion over here." And it's, you know, tons of fun to just be that other person for the game.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really fun part of part of games. You get to uh and, you know, for queer people, sometimes that means you can actually play as someone that's more you <laughs> than you get to be during your everyday life. Now, I have a
3: potentially stupid question, but because I don't know if you necessarily would be able to answer this, because I don't know if you have played before. But would you say, assuming you have, like, an understanding game group and things like that, would you say that, like, Dungeons & Dragons is, like a popular game or like, have you ever considered like playing Dungeons and Dragons for these reasons that you're bringing up?
1: Oh, 100% role playing games. It's another level of freedom. And uh, yeah, it's there's a lot of queer people playing. I've recently started playing it a few months ago during. um, Yeah, during the pandemic got to be a part of an online game. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. You can create your character. You can try different characters. Um, I definitely think there's a lot of people that get to kind of explore um, gender through that, um, and I know that it's it's the case in uh, yeah computer games and the gaming community as well. Um, and you know, I I identify as a lesbian and sister, but I I'm very masculine presenting. I'll wear men's clothes and things like that. So I kind of like to play with gender a little bit, um, but I know for people that are transgender or gender fluid, um, yeah, those kind of spaces can be really freeing and a real place where you can be yourself.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I also think another big part of it that I've been reflecting on is uh, it's it's a place where you can be competitive and you can play that's not sports. <laughs> and queer people have, yeah, you know, find a really hard place. Um, Sports are really, really highly gendered. There are lots of rules about what you wear and the clothes that you have to be in for your sports uniform and things like that. So, um, you know, there are people trying to work on that in different sports groups and teams. Um, but definitely traditionally there haven't, hasn't been a lot of room for queer people in sports. So finding other places where you can get a similar kind of experience, um, be a part of, a part of a group playing a game. Win something <laughs> have a little have a little victory, um yeah, I think it's a really nice space for that.
0: yeah, some good low stakes competition where you can really be yourself, right?
1: yeah, definitely um and I have found it a fairly safe place for me personally. I think everyone has different experiences with who they meet at sort of board game catch ups and things like that. But I've definitely found that um, I'll often spot another couple of queer people in the room. I feel pretty comfortable wearing whatever I want to wear. Yeah so it's been been quite a nice place and a really a really fun space that I, I hope that we'll see more and more you know those kind of overlaps between the culture and I know there are a couple of games starting to come out that are a bit more conscious of that overlap, uh, I think the was it Dead of Winter? I think the board game designer might have come out, or I think so. Um, had a few things to say about sort of the relationships that are possible during the game, things like that. So there are people a bit more conscious of it in the games, but I just think yeah, it's uh, it's a really fun space and something that's. Yeah, going to
2: continue to have a lot of queer people around, I think.
3: Yeah, just a really quick thought. um, Well, not really a thought, but an observation. But I know, and I don't know if it's just in America, but I know that Fog of Love, which I don't even know if that's an American exclusive game in the first place, but I know that they've come out with like a man and a woman on the cover a woman and a woman on the cover a man and a man on the cover so they have like different box covers for people who identify differently which i thought was really neat when they started doing that
1: yeah that's really cool having some more representation um yeah that's definitely exciting and yeah i don't know i think people are getting more aware of it with with the art for sure um because there's definitely some looks that are sort of identifiable as as sort of queer. People that aren't queer will sort of say, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> you know, it's just a character, we just drew it. There's, you know, we didn't intend to draw straight characters um, or cisgender characters. But I think that, you know, if you hire a queer artist, they'll be able to, you know, draw a real diversity of people and it'll be recognizable, recognizable to, to LGBTIQ people. Um, yeah. So it definitely comes across and makes you feel, oh, it's always nice to feel a little bit represented. hmm
0: That does it for this week's episode of Jonah and Ben Play Board Games with Friends. Caitlin, thank you very much for joining us today and opening our eyes to the other side of the hobby. Mm-hmm.
1: You're so welcome. And thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure. And you will have to thank Louisa yourself for the great music throughout.
4: (laughs) I will do that. All right. See you all next week.